And today I'm joined by Freddie DeBoer on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Thanks for joining. I was going to say us, but thanks for joining me, Freddie. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, Crystal is currently doing an open house thing for for the kids. The kids are going back to school and they they pop these things out of nowhere. So it's just you and me alone, but I think we can make do with that. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so first of all, I know you have a new book coming out in a while. I know it's not out yet, I don't believe. So you want to mention that real quick? Yep, September 5th, uh, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement um, from Simon & Schuster. It's available for pre-order now. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you sent uh, a couple copies to Crystal, and so I'm going to check it out very shortly. Um, And I know I read an article you wrote recently, which I found very interesting. It was, uh, I'm going to butcher the title here, but I'm uh, paraphrasing. It's like, AOC is just a regular Democrat now. Is that correct? That is the, the title, yeah. Although I mean, you know, New York Mag picks the headline, but yes, that's that's the headline. Okay, so why don't you tell everybody, give everybody your thesis and your argument there, because we're in interesting positions. Because I'm one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, which which mm-hmm. brought us AOC. So you know, I have some familiarity internally with what she's like, and obviously her record and what she's like now. So give everybody your general thesis, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I think that it is time. Uh, it's an appropriate time to uh, uh, talk about the uh, state of left Democrats and the left Democratic project, um, what it means to be a socialist and client person working within a Democratic party. Um, I say that because um, uh, while I am uh, a fan of Marianne Williamson, uh, and I think that she is uh, unfairly uh, marginalized in the conversation, I don't think anyone expects that, you know, there's a chance that she'll win the Democratic nomination. And so now is a good time to sort of look at where we are in the sort of, for lack of a better term, post-Bernie left Democrat world that we are in um, to take stock of where we are uh, without having to worry about whether or not we're adequately supporting, um, well, Bernie or any other sort of serious left candidate for the presidential primary. Uh, and uh, that led me to, to thinking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When I first uh, sort of formulated the idea for the essay and started pitching it um, to New York Magazine, uh, I was still living in New York. Uh, so it was a sort of local concern for me. <clears throat> and I think that uh, it's fair to say that uh, she's been a disappointment for me in the half decade that she has been uh, in uh, national politics now for the specific reasons that I articulated in the piece. Um, I think that she has been ideologically inconsistent. I think that she's done things that don't support my values or the values that she identified uh, in uh, her uh, original campaign in 2018. I also think that um, she just hasn't demonstrated a coherent sense of what she wants to be as a legislator. Um, you know, one of the things that I keep getting accused of saying that I didn't say is, you know, people are saying, oh, you think that she can just will legislation into being as a single congresswoman. I know she can't do that. But what I want is to see a consistent sense of like, this is what my approach is as a uh, 
Justice Dem as a socialist identifying congresswoman. Here's how I view this position of a congresswoman, and here's how I'm going to uh, pursue the interests of left Democrats. I just don't think that she has a coherent set of values, a coherent sort of strategic sense for her position. And uh, I was quite frustrated with it. Uh, and I wrote it all down. And, uh, you know, AOC uh, gets big clicks. So uh, New York Mag was more than happy to publish it. So um, I think our our issues with her are similar, but not exactly alike. So when we founded Justice Democrats, the whole idea of it was supposed to be. And in fact, the original working name for it, not many people know this, but the original working name for it was the left Tea Party. And right. so the the model was similar to the Tea Party. It was supposed to be like. What if we had very loud, very aggressive, very unapologetic lefties who would use, you know, procedural uh, tactics to sort of force our agenda into the conversation and sort of buck party leadership in a way that rallies actual voters and human beings to our side? And it's like, you know, you make a spectacle over things that are important, like universal health care, higher wages, unions, et cetera. And you sort of use that to uh, pressure um, leadership of the Democratic Party to try to force our agenda through mm -hmm. and and do it, you know, I say the word force, I'm using that loosely because of course I think these things, and it's backed up by the polling data, are supported by the majority of the American people. So it's really like using a crusading tactic on behalf of the people in a sense. And from my perspective as a founder of the group, it's very clear that once a, a lot of these people got to Washington, D.C., um, it became a lot harder for them once they got in the room to maintain the same sort of approach. It's almost like they get co-opted by democratic leadership and democratic leadership starts to play this game with them where it's like, hey, look, you know, you go along to get along. If you do this for me, I do this for you. Maybe you get a committee position if I get your vote on this thing or that thing. And basically, like once they got into that room, I think they lost the core of of their mission and they never were as aggressive against leadership as as I wanted them to be. But my biggest problem with her, and I think you bring up some good points in the piece, like, hey, here are the, the issues where she even voted the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But I will say my biggest issue with her is not even really how she votes, because I think on like 90 to 95 percent of the things she votes the right way. My biggest issue is not that she's a sellout. I think she still thinks she's doing well. My biggest issue is that she sucks on strategy. That's point number one, right. which goes back to the whole argument I was just making. And then also, and I think you'll agree with me on this one is that she sort of got lost on on the field of identity politics, where this is not something that was part of the original Justice Democrats movement. In fact, in the original platform, we had something in there about like free speech and college campuses being very important. We wanted to like embrace the First Amendment. And instead, we get this like hyper sectarian and identitarian stuff where she's, you know, she did a TikTok or something where she was chastising Democrats for not saying the term Latinx. And so it's like, she's gone further left on these like niche social identitarian things. But then on the economic things, it's like she sort of, uh, I wouldn't say stepped away from her radicalism, but has been co-opted by leadership to the point where she feels like I'm not going to, this is not going to be my rallying cry. And that's my main issue with her. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that that's all right. I mean, again, like <clears throat> the, the core issue for me Yes, I'm mad about things that she where she has voted in ways that sort of contradict my values. But I'm, you know, the, the the deeper structural issue is that again, I don't know what she thinks her role is as a left congresswoman. And I would look at someone like Barbara Lee, who 
<clears throat> you can certainly say has had sort of minimal uh, ability to actually craft policy as a single congresswoman, but who has had a tremendous sort of amount of consistency in her approach to to that office. And that's what I'm missing from AOC. I want to say, like, you, you brought up the term sellout. One of the great frustrations for me uh, from the re about the reaction to the piece is, again and again and again, I'm accused of, of saying that AOC is a sellout. That, that term does not appear in the piece that I wrote. Uh, right, yeah. Eric Levitz, I mean, Eric Levitz from New York Magazine, who wrote a, a response to it. Um, you know, he's one of the people who says that I'm calling AOC a sellout. I, I don't even know what that means, right? Like, that's that, that's just got, that's just got no, I have no interest in that particular term. Here's the sort of thing that I do have interest in, right? So the American Rescue Plan and uh, the effort to use it to increase the federal minimum wage. Um. It was not going to happen because of Joe Manchin. Fine. Uh, you as someone who is sticking her neck out at the beginning of the process and saying this is a, a sort of red line item for us. We're going to fight for the minimum wage. I'm going to use my muscle and we're going to pull and we're going to get the party to uh, fight for a $15 minimum wage in the American Rescue Plan Act. You do that. And then a little while later, you just meekly vote for the bill with no uh, provision for increasing the, the minimum wage uh, in it. That to me is an, a really good example of how she just doesn't seem to have a plan, right? Like there's yes. there's just no sense that like she knows what she's doing. If you are going to make that stand, then put in a protest vote and vote against the bill when it comes up when it comes up. Uh, to a vote and lose, but lose having staked that claim that you're not going to vote for it unless it increases the minimum wage. Or don't like generate a bunch of headlines at the beginning of that news cycle talking about how you're gonna you're gonna make this happen, right? Like know in advance what your strategy is and what your approach is. And it just seems like five years into this thing, um <clears throat> she just doesn't know uh, what she wants her relationship to be with the leadership of the party. Uh, and I think that you're right to say that, like so many people before her, she got to Washington and she got pulled into offices by people who, you know, Democrats, mainstream Democrats, like, oh, I respect you so much. You're, you're the future of the party, but you have to understand there's a certain way that things work here and you yep. need to compromise and you need to slow down. One of the things that I kept responding to when people were uh, getting angry about the article is people would say, well, she has to compromise to make change. And I would always say, OK, what is the change? Right. Like there's this constant insistence that her behavior is motivated by a desire to play ball with the party in order to get other things. But no one can define for me what those things are that she's gotten. Right. Like. Um, there, people keep sort of ascribing all kinds of victories to her when I see no reason, no documentary evidence at all that she had anything to do with them. I mean, one of the things that people kept saying is, well, there's like 50 socialist state legislators now. And that wasn't true when, Obama, when uh, AOC got uh, elected. And it's like, did AOC run those campaigns? I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, why, why is it relevant that AOC, like, how do you know AOC made that happen? 
And she just has this halo effect where just everyone just wants to sort of hand her lawyer laurels based on, you know, no evidence that she's actually made anything happen. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you got such backlash over the piece, because in the circles I run in, it's almost like the taboo thing um, is to say, I think she's a little better than a standard Democrat. Like the circles I run in, the standard position is like, well, of course, she's like a sellout. And that's the one part. And I'm glad you clarified on the sellout thing, because I didn't see that word used in the piece. And that's the one area in which I've sort of defended AOC, because I don't I define sellout as like you're now doing the bidding of your corporate donors over the people. And I don't think that's her motivation. If I had to guess what's going on in her head, I would call this phenomenon Washington brain, which is like you think you're an outsider. You think you're a crusader for all that's right and just. And she has all these quotes from when she first ran. I'd rather be a one term congressperson and get stuff done than keep going back or whatever. But then, like you said, when you get there, you know, uh, you get called into the room with leadership and you have a conversation with them and they ease you into it and they say, hey, there's a process. There's a way that this works. And you got to understand that the way you get far and the way that you get the stuff you want is to play ball with us. And, you know, you'll get a committee position if you do X, Y and Z for me and so on and so forth. And I just think that whole phenomenon is called Washington brain, where it's almost like the radicalism gets sucked out of you just by very nature of the fact that you're in the belly of the beast. But I'd be curious what you think of this. We might have a disagreement here. Do you think it's even possible for somebody who's an outsider, who means well, who's a strong lefty to get to D.C. and then uh, avoid Washington brain? Because I definitely think that is possible. And I think the issue with AOC is that she also feels like she wants to win higher office eventually. And so she's playing the game and being more of a quote unquote standard Democrat. And as a result of that, she doesn't have very many legislative victories that she could show to the left and say, see, I'm still representing you. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if uh, to the degree to which someone can, can get to Washington and maintain uh, their leftist ideals in the way that we would like. But I, so because I don't know, I would sort of I would twist your, your question sort of 90 degrees and, and, and phrase it this way, which is like, I mean, the, the fundamental feeling that motivated this piece for me was you can't simultaneously tell me that AOC is this incredible socialist, re, uh, you know, radical uh, congresswoman who's the best hope that we have had in decades and that she is a uh, this soldier for the working class who is uh, you know brings hope to so many. And then when you point out that nothing happens, when someone points out that nothing happens, you turn around and say, "Well, she's just one congresswoman. What could she do?" Right? Like to me, that is the thing that I find infuriating: is there is this constant toggling back and forth between AOC. You know that you you can buy a votive candle of AOC. Right. Like you can buy a candle, like a religious candle with AOC dressed up like a nun going like this because she's got this hagiography about her. She's got this iconography. She's she's become this incredibly loaded lefty celebrity. There's a children's book called The ABCs of AOC. There's an entry for every letter in the alphabet. And like, for example, one of them is V is for visionary. And it's a picture of. Uh, it's a, a drawing of AOC's face and she's smiling beatifically down at you. And there's she's she's her head is surrounded by cherry blossoms. You know, that shit is was weird to me. And like, I don't I don't think that it's helpful. But if you're going to have that, you can't then turn around and tell me, oh, no, you you were you were foolish to ever expect anything from her. Right. Like what, what I would what I would like. And this is something that Eric Levins didn't didn't uh, address at all, that essentially none of the critics address at all. It's like 
it either she is this incredible you know, secular saint of a leftist champion, and she deserves all of that sort of attention, in which case we have to expect things from her. Or she's just one lefty congresswoman and she can't do anything and we shouldn't expect everything from her. But it it, it can't be both at the same time, right? Like she, that she cannot be our conquering hero and someone who's so powerless that we can't expect anything from her in the first place. Yeah. I mean, as you told that story of like the candle and everything, I think Mm -hmm. the people who are willing to worship her like that are almost worshiping her for a different reason than what you and I expected out of her. You and I expected Mm -hmm. like a new kind of crusading young Bernie Sanders type when in reality we got somebody who's really like an avatar of an outsider Latina woman who for identity politics reasons is sort of held up. And also she, she unseated like somebody who was very high up in the democratic party and very possibly could have been the next democratic leader. So there's more like, there's more of that that goes into it. Whereas you and I look at it and I'm like, I don't care what her background is, what her ethnicity is, et cetera. Like I wanted somebody who's a lefty crusader on those policy things. And the people who you're talking about who might worship her, that's not, they don't really, they don't really prioritize the same things you and I prioritize, which might help explain like the disconnect. Right. Right. But I guess, I guess maybe that was just like part of the point of the piece, right? It's just like, yeah, mm-hmm. let, let, let's separate the iconography from the person. Right. You know, it was interesting. I, I thought I, you know, I, I mean, I said to myself when I was set down to write the thing, I was like, like going after AOC is, is definitely going to provoke a fierce backlash. The one thing I don't want them to say is that I haven't addressed substance. So I'm going to go really specifically and say, I think this moment was a mistake and this moment was a mistake and this moment was a mistake. And that's what the piece says. It's just it's a catalog of moments in AOC's career where I thought that she just made bad decisions. Um, But ultimately, it just it just didn't matter that I tried to be as specific as possible because um, people just don't want to sort of be confronted with this stuff. I think, I, I you know. There has been a fair amount of um, uh, sort of grappling with the fact that, you know, the whole Bernie thing appears to have petered out and we don't have a lot to show for it. Uh, Bhaskar Sankara wrote a piece, I think, last year um, where he sort of talked about the fact that, you know, it definitely appears that we're sort of in a um, unhealthy stasis at this point. So that notion is out there. But, you know. I mean, I, I, I emphasize this in the piece for a point, like, it's not just that it's annoying to me when you get all of the sort of AOC and Bernie, like, sort of, you know, mythology and, well, we have to support our socialist champions stuff at the same time as everyone is saying we can't do anything. They're still fucking asking for donations all the time, right? Like, I mean, when I'm told oh, we, sh- we can't expect anything from these people because they don't have enough party uh, enough power. You know, my natural response is, okay, why did I make all those $27 donations? And, you know, I mean, you know, when I, I first started donating to Bernie when I was a grad student, right? Like the, the whole Bernie machine hoovered up millions of dollars off of small donors, which sounds very noble when you're talking about how Washington gets funded. But then when you turn around and say, oh, we can't get anything done, it seems kind of, uh, malign to me, right? Like you, you, okay. You took those donations and you sent the fundraising emails, and once you talked about everything that you're going to get done and how powerful you are, and now you're saying, "Oh, we can't do anything." That seems pretty cruel to me. 
Yeah, so this is good because this is the area where we disagree. So most of the, your piece when I'm reading it, I'm going, yep, 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 yep. Because as you said, you're you're cataloging the votes and the specific points where you're like, messed up here, messed up here. What are you trying to do? What's your identity? Are you really an outsider? Are you trying to be an insider? Are you trying to win higher office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I still ultimately, the part where I disagree was that last part where I felt like you sort of fed into what I would describe as the doomerism and the nihilism on the left, which is a pervasive problem on the left that we always have to, I feel like, combat. Whereas your argument seemed to be, well, what if those people were kind of right? And so is that a fair categorization of your argument? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I grew up in a far lefty environment, and I still have a network that includes a lot of people who self-identify as communists. Most of them have gray hair now, but they are the kind of people who um, just say like every time that some, you know, someone exciting comes down the pike in electoral politics, they just say, you know, you're getting fooled again. Lucy's going to pull out the, the football out from Charlie Brown again. Um, you, We've been down this, this path a hundred times. You should know better by now than to expect anything. Um, they'll talk about Obama, right? Like, the George W. Bush administration was a horror show from beginning to end. So much awful things happened. Everybody was desperate for change. We got a guy showing up talking about hope and like borrowing slogans from the labor movement in Barack Obama. And he ends up, you know, governing as a like center right technocrat. Yeah, Bill Clinton. Uh, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and those and those and those commies I know said, look, we were right. You, sh- you should never have believed a Democrat who told you that he was Mr. Hope and change. And you, you got the wool pulled over your eyes. And those people said the same thing about Bernie in 2016. And they said the same thing about AOC in 2018. And I have fought for a long time to maintain a commitment to electoral politics, because I think that it's foolish uh, to abandon that element of the of the fight for for progressive change, and I I think that those commies have you know marginalized themselves and their politics obviously aren't relevant at all in the national sense, but I I, I can't help but notice that on a long enough timescale they seem to just always be right about the Democrats. Okay, like the, so now you know, let me make a counter case because I you know listen I honestly I in part blame myself for feeding into that kind of doomerism and nihilism, okay? And I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's fair. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. First of all, if you look at what's going on in Minnesota right now, uh, the Democrats have a one-seat majority in that state. Here's what they've achieved so far. Universal free school meals, legal weed, carbon-free electricity by 2040, tax rebates for the working class up to $1,300 for people making under $150,000 a year, 12 weeks paid family leave, 12 weeks paid sick leave, they banned conversion therapy, they did red flag laws for guns, they did universal background checks for guns, they did automatic voter registration, they did free public college for everybody making under 80K, they did a ban on PFAs, which are the forever chemicals, they did a $2.2 billion increase in funding for K-12 schools, they did sectoral bargaining for uh, nursing home workers, This is all with a one-seat majority. Now, maybe you and I, the whole conversation we were having before sort of misses the mark, at least in the sense that here I'm talking about Midwestern Democrats. We were talking about a Northeastern Democrat who was a justice Democrat at the national level, right? But when Mm -hmm. I look at what's going on in Minnesota, when I look at what happened in Wisconsin with uh, Governor Tony Evers, he did a procedural trick to basically increase public school funding for the next 400 years. I look at that and I go... If I'm actually evaluating the evidence objectively, rationally, fairly, I'm going to walk away from this going, 
there is some cause for hope in in some areas around the country from people who otherwise I would have previously described as mainstream Democrats. This is some pretty base to lefty stuff, and it's coming from standard Midwestern Democrats. Well, and look, let, let me let me put on my optimist hat. Um, Joe Biden could be a lot worse, right? Like, um, I, I you know I, I I will give a thing that I will give Eric Levitt's credit for is he's correct to say that the response to uh, the pandemic and the uh, aid packages, the American Rescue Plan, and other COVID packages that were designed to stimulate the economy. Um, you know, now there's talk about whether they were too aggressive, they were too large because of inflation. And that was certainly not the response that we got uh, in the Obama administration to the financial crisis then, in which uh, a time in which uh, we dramatically undershot the amount of money that we pumped into the economy. And the result was that, uh, excuse me, we had a decade, a lost decade of job growth uh, where the amount of uh, people out of formal employment was dramatically higher than it had to be. And the fact that uh, the uh, COVID relief packages were so much bigger and so much more aggressive uh, demonstrates leftist influence in Congress. I think that that's a good thing. Um, I, I will note that, you know, COVID was a totally unique global pandemic that had scared the hell out of uh, a lot of people and that uh, the private sector business leaders were, were crying out for a very aggressive COVID response. So it's not like this was sort of, you know, driven by pure lefty instincts. But I think that Joe Biden could be worse. He could be a lot better. He could, for example, express solidarity with striking workers, which uh, he has failed to do. Um, <clears throat> the, the trouble is, you know, it's great that Minnesota Democrats did that with a one-seat majority. Uh, I believe Barack Obama had a supermajority at the beginning of his uh, uh, Correct. presidency, Correct. right? Yeah. Yep. And, I mean, he got a health care plan that was originally written by the Heritage Foundation yeah. that left tens of millions of people without uh, health insurance that had the rubber stamp of the very industry that has caused health care in the United States to be such a disaster. And he didn't get much, much else. And he, he spent the, the majority of his presidency um, fighting a rear guard action against intransigent Republicans, trying over and over again to appear to be the more reasonable party in the room, despite the fact that Republicans don't give a fuck about being uh, the more reasonable party in a room. I, I have to see it at an, on a national level and Again, so like, you know, as as frustrating as they may be, these sort of too pure to live sort of commies who I know, when they say that Joe Manchin and and Kirsten Cinema are uh, the kind of figures that uh, Democrats love the most, right? Because they create a target through which the Democrats can then say, "Oh, this is why we can't do anything, so you can't expect anything from us." This this notion that Democrats. Um, have a sort of uh, <clears throat> designated villain who they can say, oh, it's, if it weren't for that darn Joe Manchin, um, and that removes all the pressure from them to actually have to do anything. I think that that is actually like a structural po a property of national politics. And, um, 
yeah, I I want to I want to have optimism. Uh, I you know I will note that I have voted um, in every presidential election of my life uh, for the Democrat except 2016, and that was only because I was disenfranchised by uh, New York State's absurd voting registration rules. Um, uh, you know, I'm not giving up on the process, but again, like in 2019. The New York Times ran this uh, like uh, roundup of the policy platforms of all of the Democratic politicians, and the the question of the day there was there was like I don't know like fifteen or something candidates at that point, and um, the question of the day was like Are you pushing for Medicare for all, or will you settle for just a public option? And like that was like what the what the what the issue is. Now neither of those things are even on the table. Right. I people have the right to say this is the minimum amount that you need to attempt for me to uh, to get my vote. And I think that there's a lot of people who said, I believed you when you said you wanted Medicare for all. I believed you when you said you wanted a Green New Deal. Neither of those things are anywhere near the Democrats policy agenda. They're not even pretending to care about it anymore. And so those people are saying, then I'm not going to vote for you. And like, that's how politics works, right? Like you have a set of values and you say, in order to, to earn my vote, a politician needs to support these things that are in line with my values. And a lot of people who bought into the Bernie Sanders line and who, you know, and who dutifully voted for Joe Biden are now saying, okay, you're not even pretending to get the big things that you said you were going to try to get. So I'm not going to vote for you. And they have a right to do that. So let me react to that in a couple of different ways. So first of all, I actually didn't vote in 2020 for Joe Biden. I didn't because mm -hmm. I'm part of this group that you were just describing in, in detail accurately as to how they feel and what their arguments are, et cetera. Um, I, when you said people have a right to say this is the minimum that we demand, I totally agree with that. And that literally was me. But my issue as it exists today is that these same people also, in my estimation, distort the facts as they exist right now to make it seem worse than it really is. So when it comes to Obama, we have full agreement. Uh, the way I sum it up is we wanted a new FDR out of Obama, but really we got a new Bill Clinton. So on that, yeah. we have total agreement. Now, when it comes to Joe Biden, I literally expected nothing like I bought into the rhetoric. Thankfully, I was never dumb enough to say, actually, I think Trump's the lesser evil. No, but I did think they were relatively equal in their evilness. Right. And when I look at Joe Biden, you have NAFTA, you have the Patriot Act, you have the Iraq war, you have the crime bill. I looked at all that in its totality and I said, I don't think I could bring myself to vote for Joe Biden. And for me, the real moral red line was like, if you voted for the Iraq war, I think your ass should be in the Hague. OK, so I don't want to go cast a vote for you. That was my thinking. But now he's been president for a while. And when I look at his record, I think the same people you were just describing, the far left people who I would describe as kind of doomeristic and nihilistic, they only focus on the bad things. And I can do that rant. I still have that rant in me. Right. I mean, he he said he was going to get back in the Iran deal. He didn't get back in the Iran deal. We're still cucked to Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's still very conservative on the issue of the border. He's doing the Willow Project and more oil drilling. There's no public option. There's no $15 minimum wage nationally. He didn't get billed back there. I could do the whole Biden is bad tap dance. But then also, I feel like this same group of people just brushes aside and ignores and acts like the good things don't exist. And I'm, a I'm actually sh shocked at the number of decent things that he did do. I mean, 
to student loan debt reduction, which he's still fighting for to this day by now invoking the Higher Education Act, the $1,400 stimulus checks. He massively reduced the drone war. He pulled the troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, the Democrats actually slipped into the IRA that they overturned the Supreme Court decision to stop the EPA from regulating carbon emissions. That's a huge deal. If they didn't do that, then it, we wouldn't be able to regulate carbon because they said the EPA is not allowed to do that. They did project labor agreements for 200,000 construction workers, which raises their pay. He did a $15 minimum wage through an executive order for federal contractors and federal employees. He did gun reform with red flag laws and closing the boyfriend loophole. And that's all not sufficient, but it's way more than I ever thought he would get, especially with the small majority he has compared to Obama, who had a supermajority and got dick. Uh, put Katanji Brown Jackson on the court, George Floyd executive order, which created a registry of abusive cops. The NLRB has been genuinely pro-labor in a way that we never saw from Ob Obama. The PACT Act, which did health care for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. Uh, there's been a net increase of 800,000 manufacturing jobs. The CHIPS Act, which is debatable in terms of how much of it is corporate welfare and how much of it is legit, but it's definitely led to an increase in um, job creation, manufacturing job creation, and it's definitely something that some very important swing states are looking at favorably because it's helping them out economically. 15% um, corporate minimum tax rate was part of the IRA. You used to have these corporations who would pay literally nothing in taxes or get a negative tax rate, which is a net, net subsidy. Now they have to pay a minimum of 15%. Uh, tax credits for ele electric vehicles was in um, the IRA, which, at which, you know, they're doing a lot of like made in America green jobs, which, again, it's not sufficient, but it's way more than I ever expected from him. Uh, he did 64 billion for Obamacare credits and he banned uh, temporary junk health insurance plans, which were basically a giant scam that Trump allowed people to expand for three years. So anyway, I look at all this stuff and I'm going, look. It's a lot more complex and complicated and nuanced than just let's throw our hands up and let's say, fuck it, none of this works anymore. Because I do think Biden doing these things, he's a product of his environment. And just like back in the 1990s when the whole thing was like the crime scare and he was doing the crime bill and all that stuff. It's like all of the 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 anger in the ether and, and the calls for Medicare for all and we want uh, higher wages and unions, et cetera. It's like that has translated to one extent or another in a president who is far more progressive than he was as a senator. And so the thing that frustrates me is that I do feel like a lot of these people you're describing, they just don't acknowledge the reality. They just like ignore the good parts, only focus on the bad parts, and then use that to further feed what I would describe as uh, their, their cynicism and their nihilism. I'm happy, people should be skeptical, but it's when the skepticism crosses into cynicism that I'm like, you're just not being honest about the reality of what's going on. So where in that, do, do you disagree with any of that? Well, I mean, I, I could certainly uh, lay out the negative case uh, uh, for you if you'd like. Like, for example, uh, his uh, dedication to absolutely limitless war in Ukraine, which has a uh, genuinely uh, pretty large chance of pulling us into a nuclear conflict with the country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal. The fact that he has uh, not lifted a finger to help the SAG or WGA strikes. The fact that he wouldn't have lifted a finger, they never lifted a finger to help the uh, uh, Teamsters and the UPS strike. The fact that uh, the border policy uh, that uh, Democrats uh, took as like a uniquely pernicious and evil element of American politics uh, has simply more or less been extended. There have been some very minor sort of superficial adjustments to the border policy, um, but you know, AOC in 2018 under President Trump went to the border to have a photo shoot where she was crying and wailing because there were, you know, so many people in cages and 
family separations and, and children in detention. And surprise, surprise, all of that remains true right now. Uh, there was a, again, superficial uh, effort to uh, end family separations, but you actually talk to anyone on the ground. And in fact, family separations are still incredibly common. And he's not even really attempted to do anything to actually increase the number of migrants or refugees or just in general legal immigrants into the United States, which is the only thing that could actually solve the, the issue at the border. Because clearly, someone in his political team has said that any effort to address the border crisis um, is not politically worth that, and I could go on. Um, but I, I think the bigger thing is, you know what Republican you know, conservatives never say about Republican uh, politicians, oh, he's he's a product of his environment, right? Like that's that's not what they say. Uh, the conservative movement, like if you actually look at the fundamentals of real hardcore American conservatism, I think there's this this myth uh, that conservative the country just is conservative, and that the you know we just, we can't really do anything because the country just is conservative, and you know it's a center right country, blah blah blah. If you actually look at the demographic fundamentals, if you look at the polling, if you look at self-identification, if you look at all kinds of these these things, um, conservatives have been uh, punching above their weight in terms of influencing the national uh, direction of this country for 70 years. And the way that they got there is they don't look at the guy who, who's in office and say, oh, well, he's a product of his environment. He's the best we can do. And that's just they, they don't so, do that. Right? But, like, I, but I didn't yeah. say that last part. Though. Hold on, because I didn't say that last part. In fact, the argument that I'm making is the exact argument that you just said conservatives do. I agree with you. That is what conservatives do. And I want the left to keep doing that. But my fear is that when we feed too much into the doomerism and the nihilism where it denies objectively positive things, that it makes people want to sit on the sidelines and even poo poo the people who are trying to push the Democrats to be better. That's my point. I would here's what I would the comparison I would make. I would compare AOC to Lindsey Graham. Okay. You said that AOC votes correctly 95% of the time, right? Yeah, and, not, 90 she, to 95%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she may very well well may. And if you sit down and you look at Lindsey Graham's voting history, uh, he votes, you know, in 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 concert with what hardcore conservatives wants want 90 to 95% of the time. AOC is a hero to the left. Lindsey Graham is a uh, uh, just sort of persona non grata to the hardcore right in this country. He's a rhino. He is a sellout. He is someone who does not actually represent them. They want to primary him. They want him on a positions of power. They see him as everything wrong with the institutional uh, Republican Party. They see him as an example of how uh, Washington corrupts people with conservative ideals, right? There is a fundamental difference in the basic alignment between left and right in who is perceived, right, as like being a champion for the cause. Uh, if AOC were a conservative and she had as many deviations from what uh, hard right voters wanted uh, as she does deviations from what left voters, left Democrats want, as she does in reality, she would be called a rhino, right? She, she would be a Mitt Romney. She would be someone that was just, that was described as being, you know, a Washington conservative, as someone who has been corrupted by the process, et cetera, et cetera. I think that if you want to sort of have a sense of how the American left should function, you said this yourself 
The purpose of the Justice Democrats was to be uh, the left Tea Party. The left Tea Party, I mean, the actual Tea Party, the, the conservative Tea Party, <clears throat> would throw anyone under the bus, right? And would throw anyone under the bus. It would, would, would pull the rug out from any politician who they felt were not supporting their basic values. And you had sort of George W. Bush's uh, uh, administration, and you'd say, wow, this is a very conservative Republican Party. And when Obama gets into office, the Tea Party says, you thought that was conservative? Watch this, right? And that's there is an insatiable desire to move things to the right with uh, Republicans. And I think that the left would be in better shape in America in 2023 if we had a similar orientation for the pushing towards okay. the left. So I fully, fully, fully agree. That's literally my whole argument you just laid out for me there. But in order to do that, that requires you don't see people on the right who splinter up into 4000 different factions and say, we're going to start a new party tomorrow. And then two weeks later, somebody else tries to start another new party and tries to run third party because they know that's a fruitless effort. It's rigged on another level against third parties. I mean, you think it's rigged trying to take over the DNC or, or the RNC. It's even more rigged mm -hmm. trying to run third party. So my argument is the exact one you just made. I want that same sort of Tea Party grassroots energy on the left, and I want it to be focused in the proper way against Democratic leadership for a wave of left leaders to get in there who are actually like these Midwestern Minnesota Democrats who will really fight for the right agenda. But the thing that I often hear, and you can tell me if you're not in this camp, but one of the things I often hear is, no, the Democratic Party is utterly useless. Let's not go down that path at all. Let's start another third party. Let's try to do it through the Green Party. And when I look at that, I say, man, you guys are putting the cart before the horse because we need to make sure we get rid of first past the post voting and do ranked choice voting before that becomes even a pipe dream worth having a conversation about, never mind actually working. So are you in the third party camp or are you more in the, no, let's actually do this Tea Party thing and do it the right way and take over the Democrats in a way that will function exactly like the conservatives and the Republicans function, where they basically demand a sort of ideological purity and they end up dragging the Republican Party further to the right. That's what we want to do on the Democratic side and just drag them more to the left. I mean, look, I, um, I'm a uh, kind of pragmatic when it comes to the actual voting behavior. Um, you know, <clears throat> in New York, right, where uh, there's about as much chance of the Republican getting the electoral votes uh, as uh, Vermin Supreme getting the electoral votes, right? Like you're in a position to vote for protest candidates um, without fear of there being actual electoral consequences. Um, I'm I'm not willing to wipe, sort of wipe my hands of a, of a third party vote, but no, I, I tend to focus on uh, pulling the Democratic Party left. However, excuse me, the fact that um, voting for a third party is seen as this like extreme sort of self um, uh, denying like behavior that's totally separate from the other vote activity of voting for Democrats or Republicans is an indication of the problem, right? Like the problem is that when you have pledged to vote Democrat, no matter what, as so many people have, for example, Bernie Sanders has has said now reliably, you got to vote for the Democrat over and over again. And the problem is, is that when you tell the party that, when you make it clear, well, when push comes to shove, I'm going to vote for uh, the uh, the Democrat no matter what. And the Democratic Party has no reason, has absolutely no motivation to give you anything, right? Okay, if they so hold, know on, hold on, 
hold on, let me just respond to that real quick because there's a very important point here. But when I know a lot of people who pledge to vote third party, by the way, I voted third party a million times, okay? So I don't want to overstate my position here. I'm just trying to point out what I think are facts. When you pledge to vote third party, the Dems don't get their act together to try to get you in the coalition and adopt some of your ideas, as many people naively say. What happens is you become a bigger enemy and they demonize you more and they turn on you and they're relentless against you. Look at what happened to Nader. Look at what happened to Jill Stein. It wasn't like, hey, Jill Stein did decent. She got 3% in the election. We really got to work to win these green voters over. It was quite the opposite. It was like, she caused Hillary to lose and now we hate the Green Party even more and us Democrats are going to move further to the right. That's right, the that's, reaction that's, if you do that. And, and that's because it's the Democrats are a center-right party that care more about attacking the left than they do about having a positive agenda. I mean, that's, that's a fact. But look, 2000, the first the, the first election where I was old enough to cast a vote as an 18-year-old, 2000 Al Gore, George W. Bush, and Ralph Nader election. It has become a, a matter of holy writ to the sort of pod save America Democrats of the world that Ralph Nader cost uh, Democrats the election, that the, 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 all of the blame falls on Ralph Nader and his stupid voters uh, in Florida who cost uh, Al Gore the election. I would first point out that Al Gore was a horrific candidate uh, who ran the least inspiring campaign I can possibly imagine. His agenda was completely incoherent because he is running so far to the right as a Democrat that he had no meaningful ability to separate himself from George W. Bush's uh, uh, compassionate conservative shtick that he was running on in, in 2000. Uh, there's a famous story where uh, this is just to show how bad Al Gore's instincts were as a candidate. Uh, Al Gore was the taller uh, person in the uh, in the election. And, you know, the taller candidate wins like 80 percent of the time or whatever. So some of his advisors said before one of the debates that Gore should try to establish his his advantage in height and stature compared to George Bush. So George Bush is giving a answer to one of the questions in the debate, and Al Gore just wanders across the stage and stands next to him like a fucking creepy looking weirdo. And George Bush is like, uh, and he got a big laugh, and everyone's like, "What is this guy doing?" Because Al Gore is a terrible politician. Al Gore did not win his own state, his home state of Tennessee, back when winning Tennessee as a Democrat was something that was perfectly possible. But okay, I'll set that aside. In Florida, right, where supposedly Ralph Nader cost uh, George Bush, cost uh, Al Gore the election. Yes, it's true, 33,000 registered Democrats voted for Nader instead of for Al Gore. And if those 33,000 had voted instead for George Bush, he would have won the state. Al Gore would have won the state. Uh, had Joe voted for Al Gore, he would have won the state. What is constantly left out of that story? Al Gore actually won it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Al Gore won First it anyway. First of all, Al Gore won the yeah. won the fucking state anyway. They did the recount. Number, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But number two, what is constantly left out of the, the conversation is three hundred and fifty thousand registered Democrats in voted Florida for voted for Bush, right? right. Mm -hmm. And so you would say, why are ten times as many de registered Democrats voting for Bush? The bigger story than uh, Ralph Nader voting than Ralph Nader voters because the Democratic Party hates the left, right? And the Democratic Party and its mouthpieces uh, in the media are institutionally incentivized at every stage to hate the left. And this condition simply is not mirrored on the right. You said that you know Republicans don't start third parties; they don't have to. 
right? Because they actually have politicians who who, rep- who represent their values. But would you disagree that we first need to get ranked choice voting and get rid of first past the post voting before we go down that path? Because I got to be honest with you, if you start going down that path without doing those things, you're just doing self disenfranchisement. Like you're only going to get the max you could get is like 4% if you're lucky. And I think we don't have time to fuck around. We need to win and we need to win ASAP in the most direct way possible. Occam's razor. And it's like, I see where people are coming from. I, like I said, I voted for just as many Green Party candidates as I have voted for Democratic candidates. I'm not anti-third party voting. I'm just saying I want people to be realistic about it and to realize if you actually want to win and have a chance, you have to get ranked choice voting. You have to get rid of first past the post voting. Because I agree with you, the spoiler effect isn't really a thing I'm all that concerned about. But the perception of it is real. And what happens if you go in that direction is the Democrats just use that as an excuse to hate the left even more. And I don't want to give them that excuse. But it's that that second part is the problem, right? Like, I guess my point is, if a third party of hardcore conservatives who felt that the that the Republican Party had drifted too far to the left and wasn't in, was insufficiently orthodox conservative or whatever, if that had happened, right, and that cost the Republicans a campaign, the Republicans would not say, "Oh, you stupid idiots! You must love Democrats! You must love Joe Biden!" Whatever. I think they would. To be honest, I really think they would. I I, I think they would say we need we need to give these lost sheep uh, an opportunity to come back to the flock. We failed them. We didn't stick to our conservative credentials. It's God and country, and we and we and we lost that. I I think that re- that Republicans. I mean, just it is just objectively the case, right? That Republicans constantly play to the interests of the hardcore fringe right of their party, while Democrats are constantly sprinting away from the hardcore uh, left of the party. Look, here's what I think. Um, I think that, yes, it is disenfranchising to vote for Cornell West in 2024. I think it's also disenfranchising to tell the Democrats, hey, I want Medicare for all and I want a Green New Deal, but I'm going to vote for you no matter what. That's just as disenfranchising because they're going to take that information and say, cool, thanks for the vote. Sorry about the other stuff. We'll see you at the polls. Right. But it happens every election cycle. I think that the, like the, the the paradox that we're in in American politics is we need desperately need more political parties. But no one wants to go first because the first election in which you really make that happen, you know, for quote unquote your side is the election that you lose because, you know, you'll be splitting the splitting the ticket. And I've said semi-seriously before, um, I'd kind of like to just, let's just all agree as a society that in 25 years, we're going to switch to a four-person, per, a four-party system, right? We're going to have another a conservative leading party and another uh, sort of left-leading party, and they can hash out all of them what their particular values are. Um, and in 25 years, we're going to have that election, the first election where there's, you know, these serious other contenders. But we won't do it for 25 years because that at least means that we have time to sort of prepare. And that by the time we get there, right, like both establishment parties have time to sort of shepherd as many of their voters into their side as they can so that we're not having this sort of spoiler election where it's just one side is getting pulled from. I I don't know what the long-term solution is if it does not involve more political parties. I don't know how we get to a better, healthier stage of American political development without more parties. 
but I don't know how we introduce new parties into the current system in a way that does not just massively disadvantage disadvantage one party or another, which of course those parties will will resist. I, it's a a real conundrum, and um, I fundamentally as a left Democrat, right, I'm an example of a kind of voter who really feels like he has no recourse because uh, obviously I'll never vote for for Republicans. Democrats don't represent my values, and I don't want to disadvantage myself. Um, so every way that I look, I see failure. Okay, so uh, some good points there, and, and we can end on this. But so point of total agreement. I agree on the point that it is definitely better to have more parties than it is to have fewer parties. I guess the only minor point of disagreement there is I'm sort of autistically insistent on the idea that step one in getting those multiple parties is to get ranked choice voting first, because then nobody could even make a stretch of an argument about a spoiler effect in that scenario, because it's like, hey, man, I put the green number one. They didn't win. My vote went right to the Democrat. So you can't make an argument about a spoiler effect. And I do think overnight that would make a lot of these third parties a hell of a lot more viable like that. I mean, they probably double, triple their numbers overnight if you do that. So we agree on that point. Um, in terms of other potential solutions, like I don't think just getting more parties in and of itself would would uh, bring us to where we want to go. I think a, a bigger part of the problem is, of course, the deeply, deeply corrupting influence of money in politics. Uh, I think that if you were to somehow find a way either through a constitutional amendment or, or other otherwise to get money out of the system, pretty much overnight we'd get better candidates. Because we all know the reason why Mitch McConnell is a leader on the Republican side is because he's the biggest sellout and he represents the big donors. The reason why Nancy Pelosi is a leader on the Democratic side is because she's the biggest sellout. She gets you know, the most fundraising dollars and she gets it from uh, corporate interests, billionaire interests, etc. I think our fundamental disconnect in this debate, and it's one where perhaps we're overselling it to the audience because we largely agree, is like, I expected nothing from Joe Biden. Like, if I'm being honest, I expected Biden to be pretty similar to Donald Trump as president. And as somebody who was expecting that going into it, when I saw that he was definitively a lot better than than uh, Trump, it led me to, like, focus on those positive things and tell people, like, look, he's not as bad as Trump. Isn't that amazing? I expected nothing. And so that's where I think our breakdown is, because you, it was quite the opposite for you. You seem to have a lot of hope for AOC. You seem to have a lot of hope for, uh, you know, certain factions on the Democratic side that were trying to do the left Tea Party thing. Whereas I was inside, I was inside the creation of these groups and I could already see the sort of cracks happening at the beginning and some of the issues mm -hmm. at the beginning. And so the fact that you had the hope and now you're comparing it to the hope that you had, like you were thinking, hey, maybe we will get Medicare for all. Maybe we will get a public option. Maybe we will, you know, have, you know, a sectoral bargaining across the country or whatever it might be. And I think that's where you feel a little more uh, pessimistic at the, at the moment. Whereas I look at it and I'm like, this is actually a little better than I expected. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying we're anywhere close to there. I think we both agree we need Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and sectoral bargaining and all that stuff. But I'm just like, I see nuggets of hope. I see a, a burgeoning labor movement, um, which the NLRB is sort of facilitating. I see what's happening in Minnesota. I see that Biden has been better than I expected. I don't think, even though I think the Bernie movement as such is dead, I think it's dead because a lot of those ideas that were at the core of it are just the duh position now. And like Democrats are held up against that standard, whether or not they meet it. So anyway, having said all that, I'll give you the last word and we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I uh, I think that we are agreed that um, uh, it, it could be worse, but also the best that you can ever expect from Democrats is to say it could be worse.
All right. Powerful words to end on. All right. Uh, Freddie, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell everybody. So the book, guys, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. It comes out mm-hmm. September, right, Freddie? September 5th. Yeah, it's about uh, 2020, uh, the, so- the George Floyd social unrest, uh, why uh, nothing ended up really happening in response to it and how we can do better in the future. Awesome. And are there any like social media things you want to tell people to follow you on or are you done with Twitter and all the rest of it? I'm done with Twitter, but uh, you can find my uh, Substack at freddydebore.substack.com. All right. Highly recommended. Freddie, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. All right. So that was Freddie DeBoer. That was a very interesting conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I think I think everybody, myself included, if you're on the left at one point or another, you go through these wild swings. Sometimes you're like, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. Nothing's ever going to get done. We're never going to get the policies we want. And we just feel very nihilistic and doomeristic. Everybody's felt that at one time or another. And then there's other times where you feel, uh, you know, euphoric in a sense. I mean, I remember when Bernie won Nevada. Remember he won like the first three contests, little asterisks by, I think it was Iowa because of Pete Buttigieg. Bernie got more votes, but somehow they're trying to say Pete won. Anyway, there was a moment where, oh my God, Bernie's going to do this. He's going to be the nominee and he's going to beat Trump. And we're thinking, holy cow, we're off to the races. Here we go. We're going to get like another FDR. And so you go back and forth between feelings of euphoria. You know, when you see the the rally speeches Bernie was giving and there's so many people there and everybody's so passionate and energetic and the left all seems like they're on the same page. And then you go through feelings of uh, doomerism and nihilism, like when Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, everybody all dropped out on the same day and endorsed Biden and stabbed Bernie in the back. You got these ups and these downs. But I think uh, I've been doing this for a long time now. And the more I evaluate things, the more I realize you have to sort of try to take your emotions out of it, take a couple steps back and uh, look at things as objectively as possible. And when I do that, I don't think there's any cause for the doomerism and the nihilism. I think those people are actually, if they're really vocal about it, they're a net negative force because then they take that doomerism and nihilism and spread it like it's cancer. And it makes people feel like anybody who's even trying to get a better world is stupid, is naive, is dumb. What are you doing? Stop wasting your time. This is not worth it, right? That's definitely a negative force. But I also don't think that ever the euphoria feeling, we're going to get this, we're going to get this done. I don't think that's the right response either. I think the right response is to, number one, acknowledge the facts as to what's going on and where we're actually at in the state of the left movement and what we're trying to get accomplished. And number two, I totally forgot in the middle of this rant. (laughs) No, so... um, Acknowledge where you're at, but then also, number two is keep fighting in a way that's not counterproductive, right? And that's why, as somebody who's voted for third parties just as often as I voted for Democrats, every time I vote for a third party, I understand what I'm actually doing. I understand they're not actually going to win. I understand I'm not usher in, ushering in the revolution, right? And you got a lot of fake revolutionaries out there. I'm not saying Freddie's part of this because he's not, who think like, no, I'm really going to usher in the change by voting third party or whatever. It's like, no, it's the hard work on the ground that gets us in the right direction. So all these people who are part of various unions, who are part of the labor movement, who are organizing, who are fighting on that front, they're heroes. People who are organizing a direct ballot initiative in a given state on an issue, they're heroes. People who are involved in the process and trying to move the Democrats to the right position, they're heroes. I mean, when you look at Biden's record... I think anybody who's being honest will say it's a lot better than they expected from him. And that's not something to poo-poo. Those 400,000 workers that got a $15 minimum wage because he did through the stroke of a pen an executive order saying federal employees and contractors get that raise. They're not sitting there going, you know, oh, what does this matter? 
No, it, all of it matters. Every little incremental change in the right direction matters. And that's not a defense of incrementalism as much as it's a statement of objective fact. And so basically I'm done with any sort of argument that like Democrats and Republicans are equally bad. No, that, I'm sorry. That's just fundamentally untrue based on all of the evidence. If you follow the news in any way, shape or form, it's just not accurate. It's just not true. I'm definitely done with people who say, well, actually the Republicans are the lesser evil. There's some people who say that from a left perspective. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And you should be embarrassed and just step away, step away from the mic, get away, get away. You're embarrassing. The reality is Democrats are better than the Republicans, but what do we do with that information? Do we rest on our laurels? No. We keep pushing and pushing and pushing and try to change the zeitgeist in a sense where the duh position becomes all the Democratic positions. And they do feel like, I got I to gotta move on this. I got to move on $15 minimum wage. I got to move on sectoral bargaining. I got to move on this issue or that issue. And then that's how you end up winning in the long run. And we're in this weird transitional period because the neoliberal era has been going on since Reagan. Right. And it's had a stranglehold. We had it under Reagan. We had it under H.W. Bush. We had it under Bill Clinton. We had it under George W. Bush. We had it under Obama. And then with Joe Biden, I really do get the sense he's in this weird transitionary period where, like, he's the most progressive president of our lifetime. But he's no LBJ and he's no FDR. He's sort of like half neoliberal, half post neoliberal. And, like, we're teetering on that brink. And all I could say to people is, don't jump in on the fight on the side of the neoliberals by throwing up your hand, saying it's all bullshit, being pessimistic, uh, you know, shitting on people who are trying to make a change in the right direction. Join in on the correct side. Join in on the side of let's keep pushing. We're actually not as far as we think we are. Everything always feels uh, everything always feels impossible until it becomes inevitable. Right. You think women getting the right to vote like a year before they got that right to vote. If you talk to them, they probably laugh at you. They say, hey, I think you're going to get the right to vote. Be like, We've been trying and trying and trying, and we got nothing done here. Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Go talk to somebody in Mississippi in 1959, a black person in Mississippi, be like, hey, I think you're going to get the right to vote within a few years. They'd be like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? So you got you got to look at these things as they are. They're impossible. They're impossible. Oh, what do you know? We finally changed it, and it's inevitable. And we're on that track on a lot of super important issues. And I don't think people fully acknowledge that and digest that because you're in that zone of, no, it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible. Well, if you keep telling yourself that and you keep doing nothing to try to change it, well, then you might keep manifesting that into reality. No, get on the side of uh, the proper side of the fight and keep pushing. And then eventually we'll get to the point where we do win. So anyway, I think that's a good debate. One of my, uh, one of my issues that I've been going back to with this position that I have is I, I want to try to defeat that doomerism and nihilism because I've been there and it is toxic and it kills you. And I don't want people to remain in such a bad position mentally, psychologically, in terms of how that guides your actions in the world. Um, I want people to shake free of that. And so you, it, let's have a hefty, healthy skepticism, but let's not let that cross the line into cynicism. And, um, you know, that's the main point that I'm trying to get across here. So anyway, Love you guys. As always, thank you for listening. Everybody do me a big favor. Sign up on Substack to support Crystal Kyle and friends. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every interview and debate and you get it a day early. Everybody else could sign up for free on Substack and you get everything a day later. Um, and that's the, you know, the free audio version of it. And that's all I got for you guys. Remember, we don't have any conversations with any advertisers. We don't, you know, do any ad breaks or anything like that. This is all funded by you. So deeply appreciate any and all support you guys might give us. All right, I love you. Talk to you next week. Uh, Crystal will be back with us then.